You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal and I am an Associate Professor of Political Science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today on the show is Matthew Martins, uh, an attorney based out of the Washington, D.C. area, who has just published a book called Reforming Criminal Justice. Uh, Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I uh, I I was going to say where you work, but that actually wasn't included in the author profile. So are we leaving that off the uh, off the table today? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you'd like uh, like to mention by way of introduction? Uh, I work at a large law firm in Washington D.C. I've been a defense lawyer for probably half my career, a federal prosecutor for much of the other half, uh, and I'm a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. Now you uh, you you open this book uh, with a, a sort of a, a, a semi-rhetorical question. Like, if, if the book, if, if our criminal justice system is 99% accurate, you know, if it, if it only gets things wrong 1% of the time, not that it catches every criminal or anything like that, but if, you know, most of the time it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, then why do we need a book like this? Uh, what's what's the point if it's working well? And I... I I, I read that and I kind of thought, well, yeah, our, our criminal justice system is generally working well, so let's let's not mess with it. You know, if, it, if it's ninety if it's ninety percent accurate, I think you say ninety nine percent, but if it's if it's ninety percent accurate, you know, don't touch it, right? If Congress is ninety percent accurate, if uh, the president is doing things right ninety percent of the time, uh, if any pastor's sermon on Sunday is ninety percent theologically accurate. Uh, is is that where we need to be focusing? So so tell me tell me where I'm wrong here. So I guess I would make um, two points in response to that. One, at least going in one direction, we know that the system is nowhere near that accurate. So only 50% of crimes are solved. Uh, only uh, about 10% of serious crime is solved. So serious crime, rape, robbery, murder, uh, aggravated assault. So we know. That at least going in that direction, there's a huge accuracy problem of crime being under uh, under solved, under punished. Um, that's probably much more an issue of policing than of prosecuting. Right. In other words, I don't think you have a huge uh, deluge of people being acquitted, <laughs> and that that's that's uh, causing that. The other direction, though, I would say I don't think you can say as a matter of moral reasoning that it's it's sufficient if it's 99% accurate, because if that 1% was something that with um, reasonable means, reasonably available means, you could solve for, then the implication is that you intend that other 1%. Um, in other words, analogizing as some, some theorists do to just war theory, if reasonably available means could avoid certain collateral damage and you don't take advantage of those reasonably available means, then the only implication is you intend that collateral damage because if you didn't intend it, you would take the reasonably available means. And I guess the third point is 
Um, we know there's some recently available means that we're not taking. We know that that has resulted in some false convictions. The question is, is it, a, is it just a 1% error rate or is, is there a much higher error rate that we just can't detect because we can't detect all false convictions. Not every case involves DNA or, or later discovered evidence. And so what I, so I'm saying we know we're not doing some things that are resulting in some identifiable false convictions. Um, and that raises concerns about whether that's causing other false convictions. I would be thrilled if our system was 99% accurate. I have my doubts. Yeah, although and and we can we can get into this too. I, I I wonder if the error built into the system, aside from the error that we're just going to have living in a fallen mm-hmm. world, right? I mean, that's people are centers in. Yep. We will never hit that one hundred percent, and should always be skeptical of anyone who says that we're yep. going to. If only we do X, Y, or Z. Totally, totally agree with that. I wonder if that is the result of the system or the result of we just have people working in the system. Uh, even if even if they're not corrupt, which is I think exceptionally rare in, in American life, like actual corruption in American government is is genuinely rare. Uh, but even if they're not corrupt, they they are either using it inefficiently or they have other things that are going on. So you might have a prosecutor who is running for higher office and so wants that high prosecution rate, so they only go after the easy cases. Uh, doesn't mean they're intentionally jailing guilty people. Right, but they're they're uh, they're they're maybe not using the system the way it's supposed to be. Used. So it's then not a problem in the system; it's a problem with with the person. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I certainly recognize that uh, just human human fallibility is going to always result in some uh, degree of error, uh, and I and I entirely agree that we're never going to see a world uh, of a hundred percent. We shouldn't live with such utopian desires. Um, it's unrealistic. It creates unrealistic expectations in people. Um, and so I'm certainly not uh, advocating for that. And I recognize, and I talk about this in my book, that the only way you get zero false convictions is to abandon criminal justice, which is its own injustice. And so the question really is, what error rate are we morally permitted to tolerate? And I don't think that that's a percentage. I don't think you can say, well, 97% is morally acceptable or 95% or 90 or 99. Uh, I think you have to answer the question again back to the idea of reasonably available means. Are we taking all reasonably available means to avoid false convictions? And what that would mean in 21st century uh, developed country with scientific techniques available would be very different perhaps than what that would mean in uh, the 16th century uh, or 21st century uh, third world country, you know, could be very different. I think we have a particular stewardship as a particular people in a particular place with particular resources, and we have an obligation to use all reasonably available means to avoid false convictions, recognizing that will not achieve perfection in a fallen world, and our hope is ultimately not an in intermediate justice, but an ultimate justice. Well, so the, the structure of your book is uh, uh, you, you begin with the sort of theological grounding for your argument, uh, basing this on the gospel uh, and the love of neighbor, uh, and then you outline some tools that Christians should be using to think about criminal justice, things like due process and accountability, uh, and then you get into the weeds of where you see areas in our system that, that need some work. 
uh, I am happy to talk about any and all of those. Uh, I do want to start with is is there is there something that doesn't make the book? Uh, what would you look at and say our criminal justice system does well? So what what are we really really good at? Uh, and you, you look at that and you're like, well, I don't need to write a chapter on that because everything's going well. And then we'll then we'll talk about what you did right. But I'm just curious what what didn't make the cut? What we do really well um, are the things our identification of the right techniques to follow in a lot of ways. And by that, I mean the U.S. Constitution is amazing when it comes to criminal justice. It was quite literally revolutionary in the ideas we came up with. I mean, giving people the right to cross-examine witnesses, to confront their witnesses, to have a lawyer assist them when the prosecution is assisted by a lawyer, um, to, to put restraints on... Uh, cruel and unusual punishments to guarantee p- people bail so that they could not begin serving their sentences prior to uh, being convicted. I mean, those are things we take for granted, at least as written in the Constitution, but those were anything but taken for granted in, uh, at the time of the Revolution. The many, some of them are mentioned in the, in, the, in the Declaration of Independence as reasons for the colonist revolt. So I, what I love about America is the fact that our heart's in the right place in a lot of ways. Our, ide- our ideals, as we've written them down, are good and right. The, the, pressure, the problem comes when the pressure is on in the heat of the moment or as you know, crime is high and there's temptation to abandon those ideals, not fully enforce those ideals. And so I don't want people to take away from this that somehow I don't love America or I don't love our system, right? I think that what we're do what we've what we aspire to is is on target. And what I'd like us to do is is do a better job of living up to that. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about sort of the, the theological groundwork you lay? Where, where do we need to start uh, when we're thinking about criminal justice? Well, the one thing that changed in my book between when I wrote the proposal to Crossway and when I actually wrote the book was chapter one, where I talk about the gospel. And because what happened when I was writing is I realized that this is uh, – grounded, what, I'm, what I believe about justice is ultimately grounded in the Christian gospel. And by that, I mean that I think at times there's a tendency in what I call reformed world, uh, which I did not grow up in. I grew up in dispensational world. In reformed world, I think there's a tendency to equate the doctrine of justification with salvation uh, and, and not emphasize enough, in my view, that the doctrine of sanctification of God through Jesus Christ making us into a just and ethical people is every bit as much the, the gospel, is every bit as much the salvation provides as justification, as God declaring us just. And, and if we're going to be sanctified people in all aspects of our lives, that requires an understanding of what it means to live justly with our neighbor um, in every context, including the legal context. And so that was the one thing that really changed as I was as I was writing. I realized I need to back up a step here and explain that I think our just living, becoming people who more justly live with our fellow neighbors is part of the sanctification, is part of the salvation that God provides in Jesus Christ. Not fully realized in this life, uh, ultimately realized fully only in glorification and eternity 
but a very real part of what it means to grow as a Christian. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure there are sort of historical reasons for that that distinction, right? Uh, uh, certainly, certainly, my Protestant alarm bells start going off uh, when people start saying, "Well, it's it's how I love my neighbor that is part of uh, salvation." I'm like, "Well, it's how we should live as Christians, certainly." Uh, is it the the ground for the gospel? Well, that now we're now we're getting back into some of those Reformation debates. Well, but I think if you read John Calvin on this, he's probably um, much more willing to say it is part of the salvation. I mean, he talks about the double grace of the gospel being justification sure. and sanctification. And the way I put it is that that loving our neighbor or living justly with our neighbor is not the means to salvation. It is right. it is the salvation unto good works, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians, that it, it, it is unto what we are saved. Um, that, that is the ultimate point. Paul, Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 1. He says, you're elect before the foreknowledge of time for obedience. You were literally chosen right. by God to be people who would obey. Um, and so... I think it is, we do get nervous as Protestants. We have this allergy to works that I think is to some degree unhealthy. We're right to emphasize that it is not the means to salvation, but we are, we too much de-emphasize that it is in a very real sense, the salvation. It is the good life restored that was, that was provided in Genesis 1 and 2 and will be ultimately fully recaptured in Revelation 21 and 22. And, and either way, obviously, it needs to be a like it, it needs to be a part of both the Christian life and how we think theologically about the world. So e- either way, it, it still has to be there. Uh, just uh, my my uh, my my Lutheran uh, bells start ringing a little bit when I when I hear people make that distinction. Uh, so you you lay out the groundwork and then you provide some tools. I, I don't know that we have time to go through uh, all. Was it five of them that, that you that you outline? Um, you want to pick a couple of your favorite and just give us a brief overview, sort of tease the tease the book for our listeners. Yeah. So here's what I would say that that that, that what it means to be sanctified is to love God and love neighbor in the right order, and loving neighbor originated as a command in the legal context. Leviticus 19 begins, a passage begins, do no injustice in court. But then it continues on, love your neighbor as yourself. So so the question I try to flesh out in the book is, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself in a legal context, in a criminal context? I think it means one th- one primary thing with four implications. One, the primary thing is it means to judge our, our neighbor's cases accurately. Uh, that you, you see this in Romans 13, where Paul talks about that God has authorized the authorities to bear the sword against the wrongdoers, against the evildoers. That necessarily means you have to distinguish the evildoers from the non-evildoers. You see it in Genesis 18, where Abram's negotiating with God over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you destroy them for Will you destroy those wicked cities if doing so implicates 50 innocent people? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? God won't judge even an entire city of wickedness if doing so would punish even 10 innocent people. So just some examples in Scripture of this idea of judging accurately. Implications of that, the four implications are the means to judging accurately is due process. As we said, we're not clairvoyant. We don't have time machines. We don't read minds. And so we need a process that surfaces and tests the relevant evidence. 
the, the next implication is that we need to judge impartially. We need to judge based on facts, not based on personalities. We need to punish proportionally because proportional punishment speaks accurately about the seriousness of the wrong done. Not every wrong is of equal severity, and so proportionate punishment speaks truthfully or accurately about the seriousness of the wrong done. And then lastly, we need accountability for the government actors when they act unjustly. Um, as Irenaeus said in Against Heresies uh, in the second century, when the magistrate acts to the subversion of justice, he too must perish. That speaking accurately requires speaking accurately not only about the wrongs of the governed, but also about the wrongs of the governors. So that's the framework at a very high level that I lay out in the book. Yeah, the uh, accountability one was obviously uh, uh, something that was, I assume, much more timely when you were writing it. Uh, when we were dealing with Black Lives Matter, and uh, uh, I mean, we're still, it's not like we, we're not dealing with those policing issues today. Uh, what, because uh, that, that's that's one of the, the chapters that jumped out to me, what does that look like, not when we're dealing with policing, but when we're dealing with the, the criminal justice system itself? What What is accountability for, I guess it would be mostly judges and prosecutors, right? Presumably less public defenders who are in the position of having to defend guilty people sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how you judge accountability there. Well, I think it, it, I think it does apply there to the extent that they act dishonestly. I don't think that the right to defend someone includes the right to act dishonestly, but that's a, um, that's, well, and yeah, let's, let's not, let's not pile on public. Defenders yeah, no, no, nor do I in, in my book, but, but to, so no. accountability, I think actually, certainly was brought to the forefront during the, pro the protests of 2020 and, and previously. But I think it's relevant even today, now three years later. Uh, the National Registry of Exonerations, maintained by the University of Michigan, lists as of last week 3,385 exonerations since the advent of forensic DNA technology in August of 1989. You can search uh, that database, it's you can filter for various characteristics and you can filter for government misconduct. 60% of those exonerations since 1989 are cases involving police or prosecutorial misconduct, 60%. So back to the point about whether or not 1% error rate is acceptable. I don't think it is when we, when we know what cause, some of the causes are and we could do something to stop them. So, so what should we be doing in those 60% of cases, in addition to uh, freeing the innocent people, the idea of accountability for the prosecutors or police who are responsible for that misconduct. So back in the 1960s and 1970s, the Supreme Court invented out of thin air the doctrines of uh, qualified immunity and absolute immunity. So qualified immunity is much more probably in the public consciousness these days. That's the immunity that the police have. It's not total immunity, but it's nearly total the way the Supreme Court has both made it up and then interpreted it. But they also made up in a case called Imbler versus Pacman in the late 1960s, absolute immunity for prosecutors, meaning a prosecutor could intentionally suppress evidence of your innocence and wrongly convict you, and you cannot sue that prosecutor for uh, under a federal civil rights lawsuit for violating your constitutional rights and wrongly convicting you. Absolute total immunity, even if the wrongdoing was intentional. And the Supreme Court got comfort with that made up rule, literally rule they, they, they conjured up out of thin air because it's nowhere in the statute. Uh, 
they got comfortable with that on two grounds. One, they said, well, the prosecutor be, could be prosecuted if he, he or she did something like that, or their state bar could discipline them. So studies have been done a ten year, uh, in 1987 and then 10 years later looking at how frequently prosecutors are disciplined by the bar, almost never, uh, despite numerous examples of this type of misconduct. And there's been maybe a handful of prosecutors ever criminally prosecuted for those type of violations of suppressing evidence. The longest sentence ever received by one of those prosecutors was five days for wrongly sending a man to prison for 25 years in Texas by suppressing evidence. And so, I mean, this is a long way from when the magistrate acts from the, to the subversion of justice, he too must perish. He too, he too doesn't even get a slap on the wrist uh, generally. And so I think that this is itself a gross injustice that we're speaking inaccurately or failing to speak accurately about the wrongs done by the magistrate. How, uh, how much of the calculus in that, and I haven't read the Supreme Court case, but how much of the calculus is based on the large, large number of prosecutors that are elected, where your, your, your recourse is to vote against them, right, if, if you have a corrupt prosecutor? I know that's not everywhere, but it's a lot of places. Uh, it, it is different to punish a, an elected official for doing their job badly or corruptly versus a non-elected official. Well, well, I would point out that the guy who got wrongly convicted can't vote him out because he can't vote anymore. So sure. just point that out. Sure. So he'd be relying on other people to carry the water for him, uh, number yep. one. The Supreme Court doesn't invoke that rationale, um, interestingly. And what's interesting is we don't actually see much evidence that voters do hold people accountable in that respect. So another area that you see prosecutorial misconduct is race-based striking of jurors. This has been a persistent problem in American history. Uh, In 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Brett Kavanaugh, reversed the conviction of Curtis Flowers, a man who had been tried six times and sentenced to death in a series of prosecutions in Mississippi. Uh, Two of them result in hung juries. Four of them result in convictions and death sentences. Three of them are overturned by the Mississippi Supreme Court. The last case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019, and the Supreme Court, as I said, in a case written by an opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh, reverses the conviction, saying that the prosecutor had used every single peremptory challenge he had to strike African-Americans from jurors on the uh, from the jury on the basis of race over the course of those six trials. Uh, Reverse the conviction for the final time. The prosecutor said, well, if I've got to actually try this fairly now, he drops the case after that reversal and was reelected that fall. So even after the U.S. Supreme Court says to the people of Mississippi, your prosecutor is condemning people to death by striking jurors on the basis of race, the the public was like, okay, we'll reelect them. Sure. I'm sure that was a a campaign point for him. It stood against the Supreme Court. Maybe so. yeah, well, that's we we live in an insane world politically, but that's that's a, a conversation for a different time, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, with these these tools that you've outlined, then the the second half, maybe maybe a little bit a little bit under that uh, of the book, uh, goes through some specific issues uh, uh, that we have in our in our criminal justice system. Uh, and again, you you focus primarily on the courts, so there there are a lot of moving parts here, and, and several times you say, look, this is an issue of legislation. Uh, not something that the courts themselves can can necessarily fix, or this is an issue of policing, uh, and it's sort of outside of what you're working on. Uh, 
which uh, which of these do you think uh, is is the one that needs the most immediate attention, and which one do you think would be the easiest to fix? So those those might be slightly different answers. So I think the most sure. the most immediate attention I would say is the massive underfunding of defense counsel for the poor. So 1963 in Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court announces that the people who are too poor to afford a defense are entitled to have a lawyer provided to them by the state. And yet we know that this is an area that is massively underfunded and thus understaffed um, in state after state across the country. The American Bar Association has been doing studies. What they do is they take the, a particular type of case and they, they, by surveying lawyers, figure out how many hours would you need to reasonably devote to a case of this type, armed robbery or murder, whatever the case may be. How many hours would you need to devote to a case of that type to competently defend it? And then they, they apply that, that number to the caseload makeup in a particular state and kind of add it up. They say, okay, we've got X number of murders. They take Y number of hours. You have X number of rapes. They take Z number hours, and they then add up those hours and then say, okay, let's divide by 2,000. The average person works 2,000 hours a year. How many defense lawyers would it take to handle this number of cases? And what they find in state after state, they looked at Rhode Island, Missouri, New Mexico, uh, Indiana, Louisiana, Oregon. Uh, so a sampling of states across the country. And what's interesting is in state after state, they're funding about one-third the number of lawyers needed to competently handle the cases in that state. That creates enormous pressure on the defense lawyers who are generally people devoted to what they're doing, working more than 2,000 hours a year, usually highly, pretty highly skilled, um, but puts enormous pressure on them just from a time perspective. Uh, and the result is that that creates pressure to plead because you, you can't do every case. Uh, and so you might think, well, pleading is good if people did it, and if they admitted they committed crimes. Uh, wouldn't that be more accurate than having a trial? But what we know is that of the, I mentioned before, 3,385 exonerations since 1989, about 24% of those are people who pled guilty to crimes they didn't commit. Of the first 250 DNA exonerations after the advent of forensic DNA technology in August of 1989, 16 of that first 250 pled guilty. In other words, people were pleading guilty to, to crimes we know is a scientific fact they did not commit. And part of that is driven by the understaffing of defense counsel, which uh, is, creates pressure on people, among other things. There's other contributing factors, but I, I think this underfunding of defense counsel is a very real issue. I'm, I'm not a mathematician or an attorney, but uh, shouldn't there be as many public defenders as there are prosecutors? Like, shouldn't that be just the... Shouldn't there be an equal number? I mean, if you have a prosecutor doing something, you should also have uh, a public defender doing something. I mean, presumably some people could afford their own attorney on the defense side of things, but it should be pretty close. Yeah, rough math. I think that that's right. I mean, you obviously have some some tasks that prosecutors have to handle that maybe defense lawyers don't or that are handled by someone outside the, outside the public defender system. But yes, rough math. I mean, think about this. Every time there's a new scandal 
uh, criminal scandal. Uh, th- you know, there, there's a crime bill, right, that adds more prosecutors and police. But how many more defense lawyers does it add? Like usually zero. And so you're, every time you do this, you ratchet up the pressure on the defense counsel to hand her, to build, you know, more bricks with less straw, so to speak. Uh, more cases with uh, with equal or lesser numbers. And then on top of that, we tend to pay comparably senior public defenders less than the comparably senior prosecutor. So in a county near mine, which I discuss in the book, on average, the comparable levels in the public defender's office versus the DA's office make about 20% difference. So we're encouraging the best people to go to into prosecution or at least discouraging people or making it very hard for them to stay in public defense, which is an important function in our system if you're going to get accurate results. As the Supreme Court said in Gideon versus Wainwright, that when you've got a professional lawyer, a professional prosecutor on one side, and you have complicated rules of evidence and procedure, you're not going to get accurate results unless you have someone equally skilled on the other side pushing back and pointing out the opposite. As the court put it, someone could, um, who's innocent might be convicted simply because they lack the means or ability to prove their innocence. So this is an important role. And as, I, as I said earlier, I'm not condoning uh, nor encouraging defense lawyers to be dishonest, and that's not what is in my experience generally going on. They're testing and pushing back against the evidence and in appropriate cases, fighting it out all the way through trial. Right, they're, they're not dishonest, they're busy. And uh, That's my concern, is busy to the point where they actually can't handle all the cases. So you wanna talk about sort of what's the most urgent thing? I think that's the most urgent thing. 60 years after Gideon versus Wainwright, we shouldn't still be providing only a third of the necessary lawyers. And that's that's definitely not going to be the easiest one to fix because people are just not going to vote for that. Who, right? Who's running on the like more criminal defense lawyers campaign? I mean, if there's bipartisan agreement on anything in the United States right now, it's like that we don't need more defense lawyers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know that we have one. I we we have an elected county prosecutor who is paid fairly well for for where we live. I mean, it's not a huge salary, but given the cost of living, but I think our I think our public defender is just they contracted out. I, I don't know that there is a person that you could go to and say, hey, he's our public defender. I think it's whoever they can hire to to work as needed. Yeah, no, and that's the case in many places. So I talk about in my book about New Mexico uses largely a contracting system. They pay an eight hundred dollar flat fee for a defense lawyer for any crime other than first degree murder. So if you have a if you're charged with second-degree murder, you'll get a lawyer who's paid a flat fee of $800. And I just want you to, you know, take a wild guess at what you're going to get for $800. Uh, what what would be the easiest one to fix? So if, again, of the problems that you outline in the book, what would the be, what would be the one that you look at and you're like we could just fix that tomorrow, if only we had the you know political will or whatever? I know that's always kind of the weak yeah. Well, the, I mean, the political will is we could fix the public defender tomorrow if we had the political will. I mean, yeah, just yeah. triple the amount, the amount of money and voila. Um, but there's not the political will. We could we could solve the accountability issue that when the Supreme Court invented those absolute that absolute immunity and qualified immunity to the federal civil rights statute, it's a statutory it's a statutory interpretation, not a constitutional one. We could fix it tomorrow. Congress could fix it tomorrow by uh, a one line statute if there was the if there was the will to do so. Um, so in some ways, what's frustrating about these things is that. 
I would hope we could agree that it's an injustice not to provide the poor with an adequate defense. I would hope we could agree that it's an injustice not to allow someone who's wrongly convicted to sue the prosecutor who intentionally withheld evidence of their innocence. I mean, I would hope that those are easy cases and that what's frustrating is there's easy solutions uh, if only we had the political will. But there's demagoguing around it on both sides. There's, um, you know, it's it's easy to score political points uh, with these things rather than have a reasoned debate. I mean, what's interesting is when I talk about exonerations, I usually tweet about these at least once a week. Uh, the most frequent comment is, I hope he sues him. Well, I have bad news for you. Uh, but you could fix that if you call your congressman. Uh, so in some ways, I just want to make people aware of what are some low-hanging fruit, easy fixes, reasonably available means uh, to achieve more justice. Uh, so you you talk uh, you talk a lot about plea bargaining, and you've you've mentioned our, already in our conversation here, and I find that really interesting. I, I think you're you're right when you point out in the book that the way we do it is borderline unjust. Uh, I, I don't want to say it's completely unjust because you should be able to plead guilty to a crime. I mean, if that, that should be an option. Uh, I also think this is probably off of the radar of most Americans. I, I think there, there's, I don't know that there's a great groundswell out there for or against plea bargaining. I think people just don't know about it. Uh, and, and yet, it, as you point out, it comes very close to being a Fifth Amendment violation, the, the way it's currently done. I mean, you are, you are almost compelling someone to testify against themselves. So can you maybe talk about that problem a little bit and then offer a solution if there is one, because I don't, I don't know that I see one, yeah. but help, help us understand this. So I'll start with this. Every American, regardless of your political ideology, should hate American-style plea bargaining, should hate it. I don't care if you're a bleeding-heart liberal or a law sure. and order conservative. You should hate it because it's founded on injustice. So and just let me explain that. So 95, roughly 95 percent of criminal cases in the United States uh, are resolved not through jury trials, but through guilty pleas, through plea bargaining. But we have a constitutional right, everyone does, to a jury trial. So how is it that we're convincing 95% of people to give up that right to a jury trial and plead guilty? And the answer is we're pressuring them to do so. There's a number of different ways that we pressure people to do so. Part of that, as I mentioned earlier, is not having adequate number of defense counsel. Part of that is through the bail process. So we start, we force people to start um, start serving their sentence before they're actually convicted of anything by denying them bail. Today in America, like this morning, there's probably about 500,000 people in the United States who are in jail prior to trial, uh, about three quarters of them for property crimes, traffic offenses, or minor drug crimes. There's no justification for holding those types of people in jail prior to trial. I'm not talking about terrorists and axe murderers and serial killers. I'm talking about traffic offenses, minor drug crimes, property crimes, people who should be prosecuted, uh, but not people who should have to start serving their sentence before they've actually been convicted. And so, um, so that contributes to the bail, the way we manipulate bail contributes to it. Um, and then we're very blatant that we threaten you with a greater sentence if you exercise your constitutional right to a jury trial than if you plead guilty. I mean, I say to people, imagine if the, uh, in response to the First Amendment right to uh, free exercise of your religion, we said, 
um, you can freely exercise your religion, um, but if you do, we're going to fine you. And you'd be like, well, no, 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 I have a right to exercise my religion. Oh, no, we're not stopping you. You're free to do it, but you're just going to pay a penalty if you do. You'd be like, well, that's not how constitutional rights work. I'm, I'm entitled to exercise and you can't penalize them. But when it comes to jury trials for criminals, we penalize people. The Supreme Court has said that you can be threatened with a higher sentence if you go to trial than uh, if you plead guilty. And I'm not talking about like a few months one way or the other. I'm talking about years. Sometimes the difference between probation versus an example I give in the book just from the news recently, six years. So six years in prison if you go to trial, probation if you plead guilty. Those can't both be just sentences. Either one's unduly harsh or one's unduly lenient. And this is to my point about why everybody should hate American-style plea bargaining, because either we're threatening people with unduly harsh sentences to force them out of exercising their constitutional rights, or we're inducing them with unjustly lenient sentences um, to get them to waive those rights. But either way, we should hate that. We should want sentences that speak accurately about the severity of the crime, that punish the person proportionally both making a true statement to the victim about how serious the wrong was and making a true statement to the defendant about how wrong his or her wrong was. I mean, we disrespect victims when someone commits a serious sexual assault and we allow them to plead guilty to disorderly conduct. Um, and, we, and we commit a grave injustice when someone steals $1,200 in golf clubs and we give them 25 to life under a three-strike statute. Um, it, both of those are telling lies about the severity of the wrong done, and both of those are the result of American-style plea bargaining. Yeah, and I so see, I agree with all of that, uh, and and I would even I would even throw on top of that. I forget the exact stat, but it's of the of that five percent of cases that actually go to trial. It's some ridiculous number of them result in guilty verdicts, right? Oh, it's, yeah. it's like ninety-nine percent or something. I mean, it's it's way way up there. So uh, uh, that is also given to you when you were encouraged to plead guilty. Is like, look, if you go to trial, you're going to be found guilty um, because the jury assumes you're guilty. Maybe, maybe it is because they are guilty. I don't know. My concern is that if we build the we should build the system in a way. It gives me confidence in the jury verdicts that we've adequately defunded the defense counsel, that we don't let junk science into evidence, that we don't have prosecute, we don't have judges running on law and order platforms. Um, you know, there's a number of things that contribute to me questioning whether those verdicts are accurate. They might be, but it's important that we have a system that gives us confidence that they are. Well, and, and I think that's. I want to get back to how do we solve this this uh, plea bargain problem, but I think that is part of the issue is because our system does work so well generally there 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 are some false verdicts there are some incorrect verdicts in general we have a a system that works the way it's supposed to so the jury assumes that the guy on trial is guilty because there's so much pre-work done that they sort of subconsciously believe it uh, they assume that the police would not have brought it to this point uh, if not for actual evidence. They assume that the prosecutor wouldn't be bringing it into court uh, if he didn't have you know, enough that he thought he could win the case. And, of course, they're shaped by television, so there's that too. Uh, so so the, the efficiency, the, the, uh, the quality of our system works against the people who are in it unjustly, if that makes sense. Is, is that... I think that that's probably right in the sense, I guess I would might say it slightly differently, which is that as written, 
people have a lot of reason to have confidence in the system. You know? Well, and, and as it as it works, like so, you you give the number of was it three thousand? I wrote this out three thousand three hundred and eighty five right. people exonerated. Uh, both both in this conversation and in your book, you very carefully did not tell us out of how many. Yeah, because I, I mean, it's it's an enormous number, and I think, and so yes, you could say like, listen, that three thousand three hundred eighty five is a very small percentage, and I, I would rather it be zero. All of us yeah, would rather that. And, be zero. and I'm not right. I'm not saying it has to be zero to be just. What I'm saying is two things. One, the three thousand three hundred eighty five is since August of 1989. Prior to that time, prior to the advent of forensic DNA technology, it was openly ridiculed, the idea that our system could generate any significant number of false convictions. The belief was that's fanciful. Um, the case, uh, there's a famous opinion written by Judge Learned Hand, his name is, he's very famous in the law, and it's he writes, name, in, yeah. he has a great name, he writes an, a, a published opinion, um, kind of openly ridiculing. He, he talks about this idea of the wrongly convicted man as being like a fiction. People thought there's no way that happens. Now we know it happens. Like we know as a scientific fact it happens. And the question is, is 3,385 the tip of the iceberg or the extent of the problem? So that's number one is what we've moved now from it's a fiction to it's a reality. Um, the, we don't know the entirety of it because not every case involves DNA uh, or, or something like that that could prove to a scientific certainty. But my second point is I'm not demanding perfection. What I am demanding sure. is all reasonable means. That's the moral standard. And, and, and when we're leaving, when we're allowing convictions to occur that we could that are false convictions, that we could reasonably avoid, when collateral damage is occurring that we could reasonably stop, the question is why are we so willing to let it happen? Is it because it's people not like us? Um, because it could never ha happen to me? Um, because I'm less concerned about the neighbors who I can't envision myself being? And that starts to border on, I'm okay with it. I'm, it's, in, it's bordering on it's intentional. Um, and so not demanding perfection. We won't have that this side of eternity and demanding that we take all reasonable means to avoid false convictions. If uh, and again, I'm not I'm not forgetting the plea bargaining question. Uh, if uh, if all reasonable means had been taken, how many of those convictions would have still happened? Like, given yeah. the technology available at the time and, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, part of that is it's hard to answer because it's a deterrence question. Because if we recognize that 60% of those convictions, those false convictions, are the result of police and prosecutorial misconduct, and all of them, or virtually all of them, after the Supreme Court gave total immunity to prosecutors and, and qualified immunity to police, the question is what would have happened if the, if the Supreme Court hadn't invented those doctrines and sent us down this road of this experiment of unaccountable government officials. Would people have taken, would the police and prosecutor in that, in those instances, that 60% of cases, been so willing to play fast and loose if they knew that their neck could be on the line at the end of the day? So how many of them could have been avoided? I guess it depends on how many of them would have been deterred by a real threat of losing their house uh, or being bankrupted themselves had they done something like this to a fellow citizen. Well, so plea bargaining, what do we do? How do we fix that, that mess? So I think there's a couple things. 
Um, there's, as I said, there's contributing causes. So each one of those causes you could tinker with to take the pressure off. So you could change our approach to bail. So the University of Pennsylvania Law School just published a study about a year ago. They looked at Harris County, Texas, where uh, there was a change to their bail practices as a result of a federal civil rights lawsuit. So the University of Pennsylvania researchers looked at the three years before the lawsuit. I think it was 2018, I think, was the settlement. And they looked at three years after the lawsuit. What they found is that when the bail practices changed, meaning minor adjustments to let um, low risk offenders out, the number of convictions dropped 17 percent. Uh, so really interesting, one out of every six cases the prosecutor dropped or didn't get a conviction when they couldn't hold somebody prior to trial. So you see right away the type of pressure that pretrial detention brings to bear um, and it, in achieving convictions. So you could tinker with bail, you could tinker with the right to counsel um, and actually funding defense counsel because part of the problem is people get detained then finally their lawyer shows up three to six months later after they've been detained and is like, hey, do you want to plead today and get out today or do you want to wait your trial, which could take another few years, which raises the next point that the right to a speedy trial is not seriously enforced in the United States. You could literally sit in jail for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years waiting for trial. And the Supreme Court said that doesn't violate the speedy trial right. Again, that puts pressure on people. The most significant thing I think that contributes to guilty pleas is the threat of much more serious sentences. So I could see much more serious sentences if you go to trial. I could see having a world in which we say, let's take a given offense that the just sentence is six years. And we say, like, you get six years if you go to trial, you get five years and nine months if you plead guilty. Um, that would create an incentive for someone who's truly guilty and where the evidence is open and shut to say, I'm not going to waste anybody's time and I'll save myself three months. But isn't such a great disparity that it would put pressure on people to falsely plead guilty to things they didn't do and is not so outside the realm of reason that it's a bad, it's a grossly unjust sentence or that it's even really an unjust sentence because it's not like we can speak to proportionality with absolute precision down to the day or month. So right. so I think that that's one those are changes we could make that would lessen the pressure to falsely plead guilty which we know happens. Um but the but another idea that a friend of mine uh has proposed is that for every 20th let's just say randomly every 20th plea bargain that comes in front of a judge he says he or she says we're going to try this one so you, Mr. Prosecutor, you've got you're coming to me every day with plea bargains. Great. On every 20th one or every randomly selected one, we're going to do a trial. Um, and if the defendant's convicted, he gets the same sentence as he was offered in the plea bargain. If he's acquitted, you, the prosecutor, are punished in some way. Put some skin in the game. Um, you thought this was so certain uh, a conviction, so certain uh, that this person committed the wrong, that you were willing to pressure them to plead guilty. Uh, in some way, fine, put some skin in the game if you're so certain. You're willing to put someone else's life on the line um, because you're so certain. Are you willing to put yours uh, uh, in some way, you know, some type of punishment? So, you know, there's there's ways that could build in accountability and also could build in some test so we could see, okay, we'd have some randomly selected sample of cases chosen for 
plea bargaining, what's the degree to which we're getting verdicts of guilty when we actually try those cases? That would give us some indication of the accuracy of our plea bargaining. So there's any number of things we could do. None of them are really elusive. In terms of uh, our knowledge, it's more an issue of political will. Well, I see we're coming up on our time. I've uh, taken too much on plea bargaining, but I think it's such an interesting issue. It is. Uh, uh, any, anything you want to leave our listeners with as we're on our way out? I think that a point we've alluded to throughout, which is that as Christians, we should be striving for justice now, but hoping not in justice now, but in justice in the end. Um, that God cares about our sanctification now. He cares about, he died for, he sent his son to die for our sanctification, for us being ethical people, making us into that type of people even now, more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Um, and that should make us more and more just in all aspects of our lives and how we think about abortion, how we think about our interaction with literally my next door neighbor and how we think about criminal justice. Um, but ultimately, whatever justice we experience now will be flawed and imperfect and will make us long for and hope for the day when he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That's where our hope should be. Well, with that, uh, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. Uh, This was a great conversation. Let me encourage our listeners to go out and pick up Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal uh, by Matthew Martins, uh, out now from Crossway. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast, or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of high